Today on the Rogue Retirement Lounge, ESG Investing Explained, and a quick Hearst NFT update. Welcome to the podcast where entrepreneurs go to learn about alternative retirement investing strategies and structures, and all things related to planning a successful, prosperous retirement. If you're self-employed, if you're a gig worker or solopreneur, you've come to the right place to learn how to retire wealthier, retire sooner, and retire happier. This is the Rogue Retirement Lounge. Okay, let's talk about ESG investing. Okay, this is investing with sensitivity to environmental, social, and governance issues. And governance refers to corporate governance, just so you know. So why am I talking about this today? Well, I got an email last week from a guy, uh, Tim. Hey, Tim, uh, in Florida, whose college-aged daughter um, pinned him down and wanted to know if he was doing ESG in investing in his retirement. Um, and this was the first time that he'd heard the term, so he didn't really have a good answer for his daughter. So he asked me how you manage moving some of your investments into this ESG category. So first off, Tim, thanks for the message. And since you didn't give me any specifics on you know what you're currently doing and what your investments are, I can't really give you any feedback on where you're at. But in this episode, I'm going to give you an overview of what ESG investing is, along with some tips that you might be able to use moving forward. Okay, so the term ESG investing has been getting thrown around a lot lately. Uh, in fact, I saw two pretty big articles today in the Wall Street Journal focusing on ESG investing, um, but the concept is not really that new. Uh, you might have heard of socially responsible investing, sustainable investing, CSR or corporate social responsibility, or uh, green investing. Uh, now, there are a lot of ways to kind of, quote, put your money where your ideals are. Um, I remember when I first started buying mutual funds outside of my IRA and I bought a couple green funds back in the day. And I'll tell you, their performance was abysmal, but I felt good about the fact that supposedly these companies in the funds weren't like raping the planet. But of course, I, I did no research. And so as far as I knew, the funds could have had uh, tobacco companies, napalm manufacturers and pit miners and oil companies. Um, but I just trusted that they didn't. Anyway, let's go a bit deeper into ESG and maybe we can figure out the mechanics of it all. After all, environmental, social, and governance covers a lot of territory. So here are some of the factors that go into an investment or a fund's ESG score. So in, for environmental, we're talking about a company's carbon emissions, uh, possible water or air pollution they might cause, whether or not they're actively pursuing green energy initiatives, um, are they involved in deforestation? You get the drift. Um, for the social component, now here, here's where things get a little bit more nebulous and squishy. These factors include employee diversity, customer satisfaction, company sexual harassment policies, uh, labor practices, and human rights, uh, both at home and in other countries where they're operating. So a couple companies come to mind uh, right now that you won't be able to invest in. Uh, Nike, Apple, Amazon, J.Crew, uh, pretty much anyone who manufactures in China or has suppliers who manufacture in China. So what about governance? Now, this gets even more squishy. Factors here include political contributions, executive pay, diversity of board members, uh, the lobbying that they do, uh, internal corruption, and even lawsuits that they might be involved in. 
Okay, so I can see digging into a company's environmental practices because they're pretty easy to quantify. I mean, or at least I would guess somewhat relatively easy. But am I realistically going to look into how diverse their workforce is? Am I going to research their sexual harassment policies? Well, I can tell you that if I'm investing in emerging markets, there are probably literally millions of companies out there that don't even have sexual harassment policies. Um, diversity of the boards, executive pay, uh, who do they contribute politically? I mean, seriously, that's that's a lot of ground to cover. And, you know, I might be just fine with who they contribute to politically, where you might think that uh, they're contributing to, you know, Satan. So um, all this says to me that DIY ESG investing is probably too much of a pain in the ass. Um, I've said it before, investing is hard work, investing takes research, and investing requires discipline. So adding this layer of complexity to the mix is, well, it's beyond what I'm willing to do. But wait, there are ratings companies that have already done the work for you. So if you're about to buy a stock, you can go to a company called MCSI at MCSI.com and you can look up the company. Uh, and if it's big enough, chances are they've already got a rating for it and they've got ratings that you know go back for years. So just for fun, I looked up Nike and they have a single A or average rating for the last three years. But before that, they had a double A rating and the best possible rating, just so you know, uh, is a triple A. Um, so we've been hearing for years about the labor practices among the offshore manufacturers uh, who produce Nike apparels and uh, shoes and apparel. Um, so should they have an A? Well, maybe they don't cause a lot of pollution and make up for it in other ways. Or maybe they make up for the offshore practices by hiring lots of gay people and minorities here in the States. Who knows? Um, I don't know how this uh, MSCI exactly weights the different factors as they score these companies. But it's, you know, it's just interesting to look at how, how like a company like Nike ends up looking to them. There's another option if you don't even want to do this much work, um, and but if you still want to be an ESG investor, and that's simply to buy ESG mutual funds. And there's a ton of them out there. Some of these funds kicked serious ass in 2020. The best of the year was the Shelton Green Alpha Fund, which clocked in at 113.9% returns for 2020. So that's clearly completely badass. Um, the next up was the Eventide Gilead Fund, which returned 55.1%. And then uh, the Putnam Sustainable Future Fund went up by 52.7%. So anyway, getting back to Tim's email, Tim, you could do a lot of the research yourself, or you could go to MSCI and look up the ratings if you're going to buy mutual or if you're going to buy individual stocks. Or if you're into mutual funds or ETFs, you can find hundreds, if not thousands, of ESG funds out there. But remember, a lot of factors that go into the social and government's buckets are very, very subjective. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be happy if you find out, say, a biotech company uh, is great on the environment, but they use fetuses for their research. Or if you're a Muslim, you may not want to invest in a company that hires gay people. Or hell, if you're gay, you may not want to invest in a company with all straight people on their board. I mean, depending on your agenda, you might find that no company out there meets your personal ESG criteria. So if you're concerned about this, 
it warrants further study, further discussion, and um, some some research. So, and Tim, I can I can almost guarantee you that your daughter has a different definition of what good corporate governance is than your definition. So I don't have kids. So my advice would probably be to just tell her, yeah, daughter, I'm responsibly investing and just go on doing what you do. But what might be better is to sit her down and do some analysis together. Find out how she thinks companies should operate. Look up a few of the companies whose products that she owns and uses and find out how they rate. Uh, It might be a good exercise for both of you, both for you as an investor and for her as a consumer. And maybe you can learn about some of this stuff together. So anyway, thanks for uh, writing in. I appreciate it. And remember... You can always email me with questions at matt at rogueretirementlounge.com. That's all one word, Rogue Retirement Lounge. So next, I wanted to do a quick update on the Hearst, uh, my little NFT adventure. Uh, If you didn't hear last Friday's show, I bought a Damien Hearst NFT last week. So just just as a quick refresher, NFT is a non-fungible token. These are pieces of art that uh, that are basically on the blockchain. So they have... Uh, ownership rights built into them. So it's not like there you can sell 10 copies of them. There's one unique copy of each of these 10,000 pieces of art. So he released 10,000 of these uh, last week at $2,000 a piece, and I was able to get one of them. After receiving my NFT on, I think, Thursday night, Friday, I can't remember, um, I immediately put it up for sale at eight grand, and it sold within a few hours. So then I bought another one because this stuff is addicting. Um, I think it was $67.50. Um, and oh, and one thing I didn't mention is that when you sell it, comes out of the sale and goes back to the artist. And that's, again, the brilliance of NFTs for intellectual property is that they can have a built-in smart contract that uh, will essentially provide commissions back to the original author or creator every time the content is resold. Anyway, I sold that next one and ended up with maybe another $750 in profit. Then I bought another one for, I think, eight grand and transferred it over to a different marketplace to sell, which is called OpenSea. And that's a whole nother story. But that's where you go if you want to see just like a shit ton of digital art and other NFTs for sale. It's like OpenSea.io, I believe. Um, And so last night I sold the next one. And then I think that brought my total haul sitting at $9,500. So a $7,500 profit on that NFT. So it seems like they're getting higher prices on this open sea. But the problem is that in addition to that 5% kickback to the artist, OpenSea takes another 2.5% commission. So anyway, right now I'm just trying to turn my initial $2,000 investment into as much as I can before this thing becomes too boring, or maybe before it becomes too stressful. There's, I mean, I, I've always got that fear when I put these things up for sale is that all of a sudden the demand is going to drop and no one's going to want to buy it. And then I'm going to have to lower the price and you get it. So there's all sorts of little technical traps you can get into, too, as far as transferring between uh, marketplaces and blockchain stuff and Ethereum and all whatnot. And there's other fees, too, like uh, like the Ethereum gas fee because this thing kind of lives on uh, the Ethereum blockchain. Um, All that said, this can't continue indefinitely, but if I can flip one of these Hearst NFTs every couple of days and net 500 bucks or so, I think it's definitely worth my time. 
Now, if terms like NFT, gas fees, Ethereum, and whatnot are making your eyes cross, I do apologize. Uh, I'm going to start posting some episodes like uh, Crypto for Old Folks or something like that here in the coming weeks just to help you get up to speed on all this stuff. Um, I took that class from Anthony Pompliano and I learned a ton, so I want to share some of that with you. And um, now I know that Dave Ramsey forbids you from purchasing cryptocurrencies. But like it or not, they are coming, okay? They're going to be part of our lives, whether we like it or not. So the sooner you learn about them, the sooner you can maybe start making some money off of them. Uh, one final thing, um, I know nothing about life insurance, okay? Where did that come from? Well, I've been thinking about life insurance a lot lately for no good reason, uh, but I've never had it. I'm single, you know, I've never felt like I needed it, so... You know, end of story. But I keep hearing about people, and some of whom are pretty high net worth people, I keep hearing them talk about using life insurance policies as kind of a self-banking deal, where like basically you can borrow against your policy to invest or buy real estate or stuff like that. Now, these are whole life insurance policies, which is, hey, another, another thing prohibited by Dave Ramsey. But so I found this woman who's super smart named Daphne Jones, who's actually the co-host of the uh, Grown Women Growing Wealth podcast. And she's a wealth coach and she's in the insurance industry. So I just interviewed her this morning about these whole life policies to talk about them from the perspective of someone who understands them and not someone who is telling you not to buy them like Dave Ramsey. So Anyway, that episode is going to come up next week, so look for it, because if you're like me, you probably don't know much about life insurance, and she shares some actually really interesting information. Okay, thank you for listening today, and if you would be willing to subscribe or follow this podcast if you haven't done so already, I'd really appreciate it. It helps me get found by other people, and I'd love to get more entrepreneurs focused on their retirement. Okay, that's it for now. I will talk to you in a couple days. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.